Hello, spooky friends. Welcome back to your weekly dose of chills. I'm your hostess, Blair Bathory, and I'm thrilled to bring you scary stories I know you're going to die for. Snuggle under the covers, turn off the lights, and prepare to drift off to the sound of my voice as I share a few nightmares with you. Let's talk about Medi-Cal. You have a choice, and Molina makes it easy, especially when it comes to the care you need. So let's talk about you, about making your life easier, about extra help to manage your health. Let's talk about your needs now and for the future. Nobody knows Medi-Cal better than Molina. It starts with a phone call. Call 866-420-5330 or visit meetmolinaca.com. Let's talk today. Scary Story Podcast brings original, short, scary stories right to your ears every week. Like Dead of Night, the story of a man who moves into a new apartment building only to discover its sinister foundation. Or another recent one, The Delivery, where a man discovers a family secret hidden in plain sight. Have you ever listened to a scary story that lingers as if it reminds you of a long-lost memory? My name is Edwin Covarrubias, host and writer over at Scary Story Podcast, where every episode brings you a short, original scary story every week. The stories are read just like this, me telling you a frightening story that will blur the lines between this and the world of hauntings, ghosts, experiences that defy logical explanation. You can join us by searching for Scary Story Podcast on your app right now. It's the show by Scary FM. I'll see you over on Scary Story Podcast. Children, teens, and even young adults possess the power of imagination. They're not weighed down by the rules of the world. They have the ability to see the paranormal and experience things adults cannot connect to. But by being young means they're also more susceptible to the evils of the world and the afterlife. After all, only the good die young. First, surviving high school, followed by haunting childhood memories. Then, the missing children headcount. Finally, in our featured story, tragedy never strikes twice. I receive hundreds of creepy story submissions every single week. And of those, the scariest ones make it into our podcast, along with the story that we've chosen to animate and post over at youtube.com snarl. If you have a tale you're dying to share, send me an email at somethingscary@snarled.com. If you'd like to support Something Scary, then consider joining our Patreon. As a patron, not only can you help the show and see ad-free episodes, but you can also be a part of the horror and hear your name featured in one of our podcast or weekly video stories. Visit patreon.com snarled. So... Want to hear something scary? Only the good die young. High school is supposed to be the time of your life, not the only time in your life. But for some, it's difficult to make it out of high school alive. Like in this story, welcoming back one of our favorite featured writers, Jennifer Helen Coates. Ever since Sarah Wiley went missing in 1979, the students of Chambers High believed Time Capsule Night was cursed. Before Sarah, Time Capsule Night was a time-honored tradition, 
more so than homecoming. Seniors would gather to put their prized possessions in the capsule, and alumni would return to open theirs. Tonight was the night. I heard it was a prank. She tried to steal the time capsule and boom, it exploded. They say her bones are still on the football field. Scott, a pimple-laden football player, mused. For a moment, the lights flickered in the room, spooking the students. Everyone was on edge. It was the 50-year anniversary after all, and no one had figured out what happened after the former cheerleader had taken the time capsule and sprinted back toward the school, never to return again. One girl, Heather Means, scoffed at the thought. She was cheerleading team captain. No way she would give in to silly pranks. Bree Samuels, the mousy girl with the coily natural hair, couldn't stop thinking about Sarah Wiley. Bree read ghost stories more than she talked to her peers, mostly because ghosts didn't discriminate between weird or popular. They were trying to be heard, like Bree, so she couldn't help but speak up. No, Scott's right. Remember all they could find was her uniform in the chemistry lab? And it was stained with blood. Sometimes you can hear her still cheering with the cheerleading squad on home games. Uh, make sure you don't put anything in the capsule then, Bree. Heather declared as everyone laughed. Blood rushed in Bree's ears from embarrassment, from shame, from that sinking feeling that she was a ghost to her classmates. The next thing Bree knew, she was yanking on Heather's hair and everyone was shouting. The lights flickered again. By the last bell, Heather and Bree had been assigned detention in that very same room Sarah Wiley was last seen. Bree and Heather sat as far as they could from one another. Their detention monitor, the math teacher, Mr. Smith, pretended to have some emergency in the teacher's lounge. Bree knew he was avoiding the room. Ghosts, like harsh words from a bully, tended to linger. The abandoned science room peered straight into the football field, where the time capsule ceremony was now taking place without them. The room had once been a chemistry lab until a Bunsen burner had nearly torched the whole school. What did you just say to me? Heather snapped, as if Bree had just yelled at her. Bree frowned. It had been silent for at least 20 minutes. Nothing. I don't have anything to say to you. Heather rolled her eyes, turning away. Suddenly, Bree heard the thump, thump, thump of something in the walls. That wasn't you? Bree offered, fear in her voice. Together, the two moved to the wall. The closer they got, the more the thump sounded like words. It's time. It's time. Heather screamed, moving behind Bree. It was funny to think that Bree would find her first ghost with her high school bully. Look, Bree exclaimed as she bent to tug on a metal chain wedged between the floor. She pulled and pulled and the paneling flew off. Underneath in the ground was a small box with the words, 1979 time capsule written in perfect cursive. They had found the missing capsule. It rattled in Bree's hands as she plucked it from the floor. I think there's something in there, Heather exclaimed as she backed away, distressing her once perfect blonde hair with anxious fingers. With a slow, steady hand, Bree removed the lid. At first, there was nothing but darkness, a yawning black hole. Then, the ghoulish shape of a woman leaped out of the box. 
It was getting so boring in there. Who's dying to take my place? The figure offered with a dangerously wicked eye towards Heather. It bore down on Heather, its jaws careening open. Heather could see a row of shiny, bloody teeth waiting to tear into her. Bree, help me! Thinking quickly, Bree retrieved the box and climbed atop a desk. Just before the ghoul could reach Heather, Bree slammed the box down over the ghoul, sucking it back into the box. As the last part moved in, Heather tossed the lid to Bree and the mousy girl tugged the lid tight. The Bunsen burner, Heather exclaimed, and the two watched as the thick flame roared to life, crumbling the time capsule to ashes. Breathless, the girls clasped hands, watching as the ghoul disintegrated. Bree bent to the paneling and shut it tight. The two kept their hands clasped as they left the detention room closing the door on the eerie thud of the girl trapped in the walls. What circumstance would make you join forces with your high school bully? Do you have any friends you would sacrifice yourself for? Would they do the same for you? Sometimes childhood memories have to be forgotten so you can actually survive in adulthood. Like in this story written by Janine Pipe. I was really looking forward to the holiday. Work had been hard and home wasn't much easier with Lulu being sick. So when my parents suggested we all visit the old beach house where we holidayed when I was a kid, I jumped at the chance. Lulu was so excited. Even when I gave the neighbor, Mrs. Green, the key so she could feed Lancelot, the cat. During the drive, however, something started to gnaw at me, a distant memory that I couldn't put my finger on. I shook it off quickly, dismissing it as a worry about Lulu being away from her doctor, despite being assured a few days away would actually be good for her. And it was. It was wonderful to see Lulu enjoying dipping her toes in the ocean and the warm sun on her face. I swear, even her breathing sounded stronger. After just a couple of days, Lulu even seemed to have found the energy to chatter and play, holding tea parties with her toys, playing hide-and-seek in the airy house. As with the car journey, this both elated me, but also woke something deep inside. It was like a shadow, a silhouette of a memory. I'd tried to catch anything I could to grasp on, to bring it to the surface, but it went stick. Like perpetually waking up from a nightmare, feeling frightened, but being unable to recall the pertinent details. That night, despite the fresh sea air and the gentle rise and fall of the waves lapping the beach, I couldn't sleep. I tossed and turned while the others seemed to be in a deep slumber. Something felt off, and I just couldn't shake that ominous sense of deja vu. I checked on Lulu several times before finally falling into a restless sleep, only to be jolted awake soon after an odd dream. I was Lulu's age, playing on the beach just as she was now, but I seemed to be chatting with someone. Mom? I asked the following morning, swallowing my toast. Did I ever make a friend whilst we stayed here? Mom looked almost sad when she answered. No, love, but you never seemed lonely. You used to play by yourself for hours, chattering away, a bit like Lulu now. I tried to enjoy the rest of the visit. My parents and Lulu were relaxed, 
she seemed so much brighter. Hospital visits were forgotten at least for the moment. She even had some color in her cheeks. I tried my best to find her random bouts of giggling and daring and not worry when she almost looked guilty when she noticed me watching her. All too soon, it was time to drive home again. It made me sad that I actually felt relieved to be leaving the place that had given me so many happy childhood memories. Or so I thought. But Lulu was genuinely upset. I looked at her in the rearview mirror, eyes red and puffy from crying. It's okay, baby, I said. We'll see Nanny and Grandpa again really soon. Lulu wiped her nose and replied, I know that, Mommy. But I won't see Tiggs unless we go back again, will I? Just like that, my blood ran cold. It took all my concentration to keep driving, keep my eyes on the road. My mouth felt like sandpaper, but I had to ask, even though this time I already knew the answer. Who's Tiggs, sweetheart? A slow smile spread across her face, one that I'd never seen before and didn't like one bit. Oh, mommy, you know, he told me all about playing with you too, remember? And I did. Tiggs was a little boy. Well, to clarify, he had been my imaginary friend who only ever showed up when we visited the beach house. Tiggs, who made me promise to never, ever tell anyone about him. And I hadn't, ever, especially not about the things he'd asked me to do. So if he was my childhood imaginary friend, who I had never spoken of and buried so deeply, I hadn't even thought of him until now. How did Lulu know about him? He told me all about you, mommy, Lulu continued. He also told me bad things would happen if I ever talked about him. There was that smile again. My knuckles were white as I gripped the wheel. I felt her hot breath on my neck. And before I could scream at her to put her seatbelt back on and sit down, she whispered, Let's see how bad. As she placed her hands over my eyes. Have you ever had an imaginary friend? How do you know they were imaginary and not an apparition haunting you? Texas is the biggest state in the continental U.S., which means more space for disasters, like in this story inspired by the Candy Lady urban legend, written by Janine Pipe. Elspeth gripped the old sheet tightly before jumping out of bed again to check the window was shut. Ma would be mad as hell if she caught her, but Elspeth was now the eldest sibling and needed to protect her two little brothers. Jumping back into the narrow bed, Elspeth was glad to see the boys were able to slumber in peace. It would be a long time before she could again. It all started a few weeks before when she'd been helping her teacher, Miss Mary, tidy up the schoolhouse during recess. Another pupil, Samuel, hadn't been present for three whole days and Elspeth was beating the blackboard eraser when his father appeared, a somber look upon his face. He paid her no mind as he told Miss Mary that Samuel would not be coming back to the schoolhouse anytime soon, on account of the fact he'd been missing those last three nights. 
the school ma'am had taken Samuel's father to one side and asked Elspeth to head home quickly now. As she'd raced to catch up with the girls ahead of her, she added Samuel to the list she'd been keeping that was now four children from their small town of Terrell, Texas. Aside from Sam, another boy was still missing. The two small girls were now at rest. They had each been discovered in the cornfields. Old man Tucker had found the teeth first, scattered in the corn like seeds, and then a body, the empty mouth open like an O shape. The other girl had been missing her, eyes. In their place were two hard candies. The sheriff searched the missing boy's room, and sure enough, under the window ledge was a candy wrapper. On the small piece of paper were written the words, the candy lady. Gossip spread like wildfire. Who was the candy lady, and what was she doing with the children? Elsbeth caught up with her friends and quickly told them what she'd overheard in the schoolhouse. They all hurried home a little faster, greeted by anxious mothers who had heard the news. A town meeting had been called that evening and a curfew had been put into immediate effect. And then the rumors began. Elsbeth overheard her parents arguing one evening, long after the boys were asleep. The children are not to go near the old crane property, her mother was insisting, whilst her father seemed to be defending someone. A deeply religious man, he believed wholeheartedly in forgiveness. Mrs. Crane was released. If a medical professional deems her sane enough to live in the old house, then we too should allow her to do so without any finger pointing. Elspeth was not sure to whom they were referring and both of their voices lowered as the heated discussion continued. She did catch something about poison candy though, which was enough to cause her yet another night of restless slumber. Her mother had decided Elspeth must stay home until that crane woman was caught. She was tending the vegetables when their neighbor, Mrs. Good, appeared, breathless and giddy. My boy's gone. The candy lady took him. She collapsed onto the ground as Elspeth's mother rushed to her side. This is Carla Crane's doing. She never should have been allowed to leave that asylum. She is taking our children to replace hers. After that, Elspeth and her brothers were not allowed to leave the house. And so she lay awake for hours in the cool evenings, listening to every creak in the house, imagining whispers and scratches out the windows. She'd been concentrating so much on sound that she missed the sugary sweet smell. The screams woke her. She bolted out of the bed, thankful to see her little brothers in the cot next to her, the patchwork quilt wrapped around them. She hurried into her parents' room and saw a scene she would never forget. Her father stood over the bed sobbing. He made a feeble attempt to keep Elspeth away, but she pushed past him and saw what had caused his anguish. I told your mother not to speak of Carla Crane, to point fingers, and now she has been taken from us too. The remains of her mother lay on the mattress. Her head was surrounded by a dark stain, blood, and from each of her eyeballs, a fork protruded, crudely stuffed into the pockets of her nightgown were pieces of sticky, hard candy. Elspeth knew she must run to the sheriff as her father was in too much shock, but before she dragged him away to watch her brothers, she walked to the window her mother had insisted on keeping open, enjoying the cool night air. Sure enough, on the ledge was a single candy wrapper, 
scribbled on the paper was a message. Silence is golden. The candy lady. Have you ever had to be the brave one in the face of danger? Did you face something pure evil or supernatural? Tell us about it at somethingscary@snarled.com. In our final story, in honor of Sisters Day, join my co-host Stephanie as she tells the tale of twin sisters who have a connection so close that it transcends even death. We've also animated this story over at youtube.com snarled. They say sisters are related by chance, but are friends by choice. And for twin sisters, this connection is even deeper, transcending space, time, and even death. Like the story of these twin girls from Spain in honor of Sisters Day this week. Daniela and Diego lived in a modest cottage located off a busy road on the edge of the industrial port of Bilabeo. They were happily married, and after the birth of their beautiful twin girls, they felt their life was complete. The twins were well-behaved and never fought or argued. They always played happily together, only getting upset when they had to be apart. They hated to be separated. One day, their mother had to go to the shop to buy some milk and bread. She didn't have the car and couldn't leave the twins alone. She gathered her bags and held each girl by their hand, quickly making their way into town. As they began to cross the busy road, the girls were fussing because they wanted to hold each other's hand. They both began to cry loudly, distracting Daniela. She looked down at her daughters, begging them to hush and behave. She only took her eyes off the road for a split second. There was a loud screech followed by a horrible crunching sound. She felt the bones in her legs shatter like glass. Her daughter's tiny hands were torn from her grasp as all three of them went flying in the air. Daniela could barely move as she tried to gather herself as quickly as possible. Her eyes darted around to find her daughters. No! The girls had been run over by the truck that was racing down the road. Their bloody remains were scattered across the pavement. Daniela wailed nonstop. The grief of the pain was worse than the damage of the truck. She was so consumed by her disbelief, she couldn't tear her eyes away from her babies laying dead only steps away from their home. Diego tried to comfort his wife, but she was inconsolable. Over and over, she whispered continually, This is all my fault. This is all my fault. A few years later, Daniela and Diego were still learning to live with their loss, but they rejoiced when finding out that Daniela was pregnant and they would once again be having twins. But soon, panic set in. Daniela would wake in the middle of every night screaming and sweating. Her heart was pounding out of her chest. She was having terrible dreams of the accident. The faces of her poor baby's lifeless bodies in the street were etched in her mind. It all felt so real. It's almost as if her twins were trying to tell her something. Daniela was wide awake that she would pace the house at night, too afraid to go to sleep for fear of her nightmares. One night, she cried out loud, vowing to the moon and the stars that she would never let what happened to her first two children happen to her next two. And after that, the nightmares seemed to disappear. That is when both parents agreed that they would not tell their new children about their sisters until the girls were much older, and they were careful to never mention the tragic accident that occurred right outside of their home. 
Although Daniela and Diego were thrilled to be given a second chance, these twin girls were a handful from the beginning. As they grew, they were mischievous, arguing all day long. They never seemed joyous and content like their older siblings, instead always scheming and giving their parents trouble. Despite doing her best to avoid repeating the past scenario, the day finally arrived when Daniela needed to go to the shop with the girls. Knowing she needed to face her fears and keep those little girls safe, she gave them a stern warning before they crossed the road. You must behave, girls. You listen to me, and you do not let go of mommy's hand. As the three stood at the edge of the road, her heart beat faster. Daniela took hold of each twin and held them tightly. As they began to walk across the road, the girls began to struggle and cry. Daniela could feel them wiggle free from her grasp, and she panicked, especially when she heard the air horn of a semi. Girls! She screamed, trying her best to grab the children as the truck hurtled towards them. No, mommy, the twins cried in unison, moving back onto the sidewalk. We don't want to die. Again. This week's podcast stories were edited by Sarah Lukasiewicz, Janine Pipe, and Stephanie Strange. Narration by Blair Bathory and Stephanie Strange. Audio edited and mixed by Fitz Harris. Additional audio editing by Calvin Linderman. Art and graphics by Irma Richardson. Produced by Anna Villalobos. Executive produced by Gail Gilman. Music by Sapphire Sindalo and Calvin Linderman. If you have a story you'd like to submit, send me an email at somethingscary@snarl.com. Don't forget to watch the video version of Something Scary over at youtube.com snarled. And if you'd like to support the show and everything we do at Snarled, join our Patreon at patreon.com snarled. Until next time, my spooky friends, sweet screams. <laughs>